Hey everybody, we are Francis, Martin, and Robert, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is episode 79. I am Martin. And I am Robert. And I'm Francis. 79, the same number as there were Star Trek episodes. <laughs> you just kind of had to lay that out there. Robert mentioned it in the show prep. I said, I ain't letting that one pass. So, That's right. so we get our Star Trek reference out of the way. Out of the way. Because we're talking movies this time. This is a pop culture uh, episode. And we were so successful last year. We did the, uh, our first uh, version of movies we always have to watch. Uh, we said, we got to do this again, boys, because there's just too many good ones out there. So we kind of make it an annual thing. So... Uh, we're back to do that again. Each one of us will pick two of our favorite movies, and we'll each talk about them. The intention is these are all of our favorite movies, but it's kind of like, and I forget which one of us came up with this whole premise, is when, this, when these movies come on television, you stop and you yeah. watch them. You know, the channel surfing ends when we run into this. And we're also willing to endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that our families might give to us and uh, exert ourselves as masters of our own homes, even though in most... As long as the wife is not in the room. That's exactly right. Uh, you got it. We're king of our castles when she's not around. <laughs> Retreat to the man caves and put them on that way. That's, That's exactly right. right. Find a way. That's right. These movies are heart and soul. And we stumbled into this one being a 70s celebration. We just kind of started thinking about it, and we ended up saying, well, these are all in the 70s. Well, this is great stuff, because as you all know, or maybe you don't, some of the greatest movies ever made were in the 70s. Of course, a lot of crap, too, just like any other decade. But we Every think, decade has some really, really great stuff. I mean, you can absolutely. find that really anywhere. That's right. And uh, it's just... These, these are have movies. character. Well, that's right. That's yeah, right. But it, it was decade. a particularly fertile time because that... We've talked about this before. Kind of that young generation of filmmakers is coming out. This is... You know, this is the Lucas Spielberg era. Yep. When they're getting started, uh, Coppola. Um, so, so, you know, this is this is a very fertile time with a you know, that second generation that were post Emil Weiler, Billy Wilder kind of thing, um, where you start to see the emergence of Scorsese and people like that. Yeah. They're a pretty important cinematic decade. Yeah. So, and in fact, so, several of those names you mentioned is who we're going to be talking about. Uh, we've got Spielberg's first movie uh, is what we're going to talk about. We've got two Mel Brooks movies that we're going to talk about. We've got Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, depends on, you know, we're not going to tell you which one it is because it could be several. But uh, Martin's got that one kind of slipped up his sleeve. We'll, uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But I'm going to talk. Uh, I'm going to start us off with one that's none of those. And it sort of kind of isn't really 70s. It's actually 1980 when it premiered. So I'm kind of dancing on the edge of the 70s. But it's close enough. It was made in the 70s, certainly. And it's a movie that, to me, was... Uh, it's amazing. It's the first movie that I ever got when I first got my car. This is the first movie I rented. Uh, and we watched it in my dorm room. I don't know how long. Uh, uh, and I would rent it regularly and would watch it together. It was, it yep. was fantastic. Uh, the movie was 1980, John Boorman's Excalibur. Here's the VHS. The VHS, yeah. 
on VHS. That's right. Yeah, I, of course, I've since bought the Blu-ray, uh, and I've actually listened to uh, the director's commentary. By the way, by John oh. Corbin. Uh, it's worth a listen, folks, uh, if you love the movie as we do. Uh, and Borman himself, uh, he kind of makes no apologies in the fact that this is a fantasy. It's not meant to be historically accurate. It's 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 his own. It sure isn't. <laughs> well, absolutely, it's, it's not. Uh, it steals a lot from Sir Thomas Mallory, which but it's the, well, yes, it's a fantastical version, uh, and the soundtrack alone is enough to just give you chills. It's got Wagner all oh. through all through it. Uh, it, it it's got O Fortuna. Uh, yes. in there, One of the uh, greatest pieces of music ever to appear in a movie. Absolutely. Really is. So uh, it's it's got so many wonderful performances in it, uh, most of whom we don't know today, unfortunately. But if that's why it's worth. If you haven't seen this movie, you definitely need to watch it. Uh, the late Nicole Williamson plays Merlin in a way that is totally different than any other Merlin before or since. He was phenomenal. I loved his performance in that movie. He Absolutely. was. He's, he's got a great voice actor. too. Oh yeah, and he he was. Uh, he he plays him as an eccentric, but they deliberately went with a almost hairless version. You know, Merlin is usually shown this shaggy, hairy guy, and Borman talks about. It. He says he didn't want to show that. He he wanted to subvert that trope. That's why they created. But but Nicole Williamson didn't want to go around uh, bald, so they came up with this cool little metal skull cap he wears, which, yeah. has, become, which has become synonymous with his character. Uh, that was just kind of a. Uh, Borman talks about how it was. It was just kind of a way to keep him happy because Nicole Williamson, if you read anything about him, he was a nut. He was a fantastic actor, but he was definitely hard to get along with. Uh, so much so that Helen Mirren, who plays Morgana, absolutely despised him. Despised him. Uh, yeah, because uh, they had played together in Macbeth years before. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned that about Helen Mirren, uh, and, and you know, not to derail things, but I, this is one of the things I find fascinating about we start talking about movies and people who are in them. So you talk about how almost nobody in the movie would recognize today just because they're from a different time. I mean, the movie yeah. was made 40 years ago. Right. Um, but Helen Mirren is probably the most recognizable person in that movie now. Absolutely, yes. Well, you, you not entirely. Sir Patrick. Sir Patrick, but he's his part is so small. It's a bit part in many respects. Yeah, it's a bit part. And this I is before he realized who it is at first, you know. Sure, absolutely. Well, you can't mistake his voice. Right. In fact, and and Robert, you probably remember this when Star Trek: The Next Generation was announced in like '86 mm -hmm. that it was coming, and they listed the actors that had been cast, and Patrick Stewart's name was listed as the captain. They said they gave his, you know, his CV of films, and of course they listed Excalibur. Well, the first thing I did was go to the VHS and say, "Okay, who is this guy?" And I'm thinking, "All right, is he the guy that played Percival or who, whatever?" And then you have to go because I, I didn't know him; I'd never seen him before. I had to go to the credits first and figure out. And I was, he's Leon DeGrasse. Yep. I, I was I was totally floored. And of course, he is a giant since then. Yes. Yes. But uh, of the major was, actors, you know, the major players in the movie, Helen Mirren is the one who's the well, absolutely. Now, most recognizable. Very much so. And in fact, uh, Borman, I don't know if he had a thing for her or not, but he talks about the magnificence who of didn't? her breasts. 
Who so, didn't? Well, that's true. And Mark she, still has a thing for even at, at this age. Marcus is, is our, our great friend Marcus Aurelius still has a thing for her. Really? Well, I mean, she yeah. is beautiful, and yes, uh, her breasts are legendary in the Hollywood world. Even now, uh, as she's aged, they are still, uh, believe it or not, she wears this metal breastplate that was form-fitted for her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Borman says he still has it, and he's willing it to her when he dies. <laughs> Yeah, he also has the original Excalibur and the Holy Grail and all sorts of stuff like yes. this. Most of this was filmed in Ireland. Uh, the, the, the metal was uh, for the armor was amazing. It's real. Everything in this movie is done in the traditional way with cameras and miniatures and on-site. Uh, there's no such thing as CGI. This was way before that. So you've got traditional movie making that puts forth this fantastic otherly realm with some really great actors in that. Nigel Terry plays Arthur from the age of 16 until 60 or so. He and did a phenomenal job, too. He did a phenomenal job. It was really his first role. And uh, uh, Sherry Lungy, God, she was beautiful, but that's she still is. Actually, she's in her 60s now. Uh, as Guinevere, uh, they just... Uh, and the late Nicholas Clay, who played uh, Lancelot, they all did fantastic jobs uh, in many respects, in a very odd movie, it's not like it certainly had nothing to do with Camelot, which was kind of the preeminent Arthurian movie 20 years earlier to that. It was rated R, for goodness sakes. I mean, it has a rape scene, for God's sakes. Uh, probably about 15 minutes into it, ironically, it was John Borman's daughter who played Igraine that got raped on screen while her father was filming. Uh, he says in the commentary, well, she was okay with it and I was okay with it, so we just did it. The hard part was the fire that was playing behind them. It got hot. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. He, he was... It was a very unique film. I mean, it, it, Borman oh. went out on a limb with the, this production. I oh, mean, he did. He had a hard time getting financing for it. Anachronistic, you know, at the time of the supposedly Arthur lived, there were no full suits of armor and all that stuff. Absolutely So he, yeah. he chose a visual look. That, that didn't work with the time period and glued it all together and great dialogue all throughout. So it's, it's really, he really took a risk with that movie. And he, you know, he lucked out too that uh, within a year or two of its release, cable TV movie channels start to take off. Yes, that's correct. So that's it's a nice three hour. Yeah. So it's a nice three hour block filler on Showtime back in the day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was on all the time. Well, you and know, the, you talk about how he took a chance on this, and that's, uh, he did, but it, the, the deck was stacked in his favor, I think, as far as it being a, a good movie, because you've got the fantasy elements, which, you know, you're coming out of the 70s, and, you know, the last few years of the 70s, 70s you see a resurgence of that sort of thing. Oh yeah, and you know because we had you know eight or ten you know, eight or ten years the very end of the the 60s up into the very end of the 70s the last couple of years where it's all reality gritty kind of a thing. Yeah, but people are hungry for this. That's why Star Wars and, and the Star Trek movie and all of the stuff that followed after that did so well in the science fiction realm. But you've got this fantasy, and visually it's appealing. But you know what? This is not a fantasy story so much as it is about the characters. I mean, yes, you know. Francis, you were talking about how it's not about Camelot. It's not about the Rex Harrison themes. 
it's about the relationship between Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and the ramifications of all the different things that are going on with those characters and Morgan Le Fay. And it, it really is a great story about that, about the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yet that's not, you know, you're kind of sucked into it thinking this is going to be a great fantasy film, and it is, but it's also a great movie about people and their relationships. It's very dark, too. It's, it's yes. very dark, but it's hopeful at the same time. But it, oh, yes. it steals very much the tone from the Arthurian legends themselves, uh, that you know, Camelot still is the light uh, in this very dark age. In fact, that's the first words that appear on the screen at the beginning of the movie is the dark ages, which I know, Robert, you don't like that term, but this... When they're when they're shown here, it's I don't exactly the way it's supposed to be. To the entire thousand years between right. Rome and I just ha- I had Rome. to throw that out there. I know we've talked yeah. about that several times. Uh, it's uh, it's just fantastic the way they do it. The ending of it. I mean, Trevor Jones does an amazing score that's tied in with all the rest of you know the uh, Wagner and 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 the others other pieces to make this to create a mood that was actually a little ahead of its time because you have to understand sword and sorcery and Conan the Barbarian was two years away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both of those movies together were kind of a, a kind of a one-two punch to Hollywood saying, wow, this stuff will make money. And you have a slew of cheaply made and not so cheaply made, uh, you know, sword and sorcery movies made throughout the 80s. Yeah, it's and it's not just, you know, like a Conan. You know, you've got everything from Legend to Willow. Absolutely. Uh, you know, those were the bigger budget ones. Then you yeah, got they were. Master and things like that. Labyrinth. I mean, even Labyrinth. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's all kinds of that stuff in there. Martin, you had uh, something you were trying to I think, get in there. I was going to ask Francis because I know he'll remember. What is the much much later Arthurian movie with like Ian Griffold and? Um, oh yeah. Um, oh, that's a historical one. Uh, that's King Arthur. Uh, 2005 with uh, Yoan Grufford and Clive Owen. Yes, Clive um, Owen, yeah. Clive Antoine, Owen. Fa- Antoine Foucault, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing it correct, he was the director of that. Uh, it was an amazingly good movie, but it's meant really, it's kind of meant the end of Rome in England. Yes. It's very historical. It's not. It bears very little resemblance to the Arthurian legends. It's more the historical Arthur, and it's great in its own right. But nobody's ever really... It's not as much fun as Excalibur, yeah. No, absolutely not. It's, just, it's, just, it's, <laughs> it's good. Uh, you know, again, a lot of good people in it. Um, uh, is it uh, Mads Michelson is in it, right? Uh, no, but uh, the very, it's the very first time on screen for Liam Neeson, believe it or not. Oh, yes. It's his first role. He plays Gawain. He's only in the middle of the movie. No, the I other forgot one. about that. You're right. So, yeah, that's another big name. See, it's so small. I forgot about it. Yeah, he's, he's in there. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, uh, there's... Um, uh, uh, you might remember Syrian Hines, who played Julius Caesar in Rome. He yep. plays uh, Arthur's brother Kay in here. Oh, he's yeah. His first role, too. These are all Irish actors. Uh, it's also Gabriel Byrne's first role as, hmm. as Uther. Uther uh, this was a oh. big deal for a lot. Yeah. yeah. This was... Uh, uh, in, in fact, that uh, uh, Borman talks about in the commentary, the fact that um, Gabriel Byrne has a terrible Belfast accent. And it, it's hard 
for them to, they had to redub some of his stuff because it's his first freaking role. I mean, this guy's a giant now. Uh, but at the time, you know, it was, uh, they, he, he's too Irish in many ways. But, you know, uh, the, the role, he, he plays it well. Uh, so, not to steal your captaincy here, but, you know, we're spending an awful lot of time on your movie. It's time to move. I know, I know. Yeah. I love this movie. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we all love this movie. I mean, and, we uh, spent an entire episode on King Arthur movies. You know, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of them. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, let's let's move on. Skip a bit, brother. Which one yeah, of you wants to go bit, next? Brother. So, Martin, you go ahead and go next. I'll All right. Go on last. Yeah, this one will uh, change direction. Uh, pretty good. Yep. So, my movie again. This is the. It's not that it's just awesome. It's if it's on. Okay, stop. I'm sitting down on the couch. Don't talk to me. <laughs> the Outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, God, I love that movie. Uh, you know, I've talked about this film before. Might be the greatest uh, Western ever made. It is. It's one of the very best. It's, it's probably Clint Eastwood's best effort. He, uh, he considers it his best. It was yeah. his, his, he directed it, too, which is one of the reasons yeah. he loves it so much. Yeah, I got the um, DVD that has a special introduction with him hmm. at the beginning from just a few years ago, and, he's, and he says that. He says, yeah, this one is probably the masterpiece, the best one. Yeah. And it, it's uh, and listeners, if you're not familiar with the story, which I would find hard to believe, but Clint Eastwood plays Josie Wales, a Missouri farmer, uh, homesteader, uh, break out of the Civil War, the the Kansas militia, Kansas guerrillas, uh, kill his family, burn his house down. Uh, he then joins Missouri guerrillas uh, under the command of Bloody Bill Anderson, and um, they fight throughout the war. And uh, the Kansas militia, Kansas guerrillas, eventually become basically absorbed into the Union Army. So it's, it's kind of is, and, and usually I react badly to these uh, Civil War revisionist movies, you know, where the, the Union's always portrayed as horrible and the poor Southerners are, you know, they were just homesteaders. And, and you know, guys, we, we're not into that deal. I mean, they're, they're right. you know. This was the first one to do that, before that, it but was it, all the movies yeah. perfect, and the Confederates are always bad guys. And this is a, a deliberate subversion of that, showing, yeah. well, you know, it's not quite as cut and dry. Yeah, it, it is money's enough, but it leaves it, a lot of that behind very quickly. Oh, yeah, it's um, not about that at all. So it, it becomes more Western. a film about how do you stitch these things back together? How does this Missouri gorilla learn to live with Kansas homesteaders who are moving to Texas and how do you how do how does the country recognize the Native American population and, and what do you do from there and it becomes a real story about living together yeah you know reconciliation after uh, yeah a terrible tragedy and of course the great scene that I always love I always say that I'm from the Josie Wales Ten Bear School of Diplomacy. Uh, the great scene where the Comanche uh, are going to come and uh, you know kill the the family uh, and it's the family because the character the grandma who was this Kansas settler who hated everybody yeah. who then learns to accept that she's got. You know, Indians in tow with her and this Missouri gorilla in tow with her and all this stuff. They settled in Texas. And, uh, 
the Comanches are, don't want them there. They're going to burn them out. They're going to shoot them all. And Josie goes up in the hills uh, to meet with them and negotiate and say, look, we can live or we can die. I'm not promising anything extra. How about we just try to live together? And it's, it's a great scene. Um, uh, I think it's Will Sampson who plays Ten Bears. Yeah. And, uh, just, I love that movie. It's so great. And um, uh, just, you know, all these great characters are in it and uh, lots of great lines in it, of course, all very quotable and very repeatable. You know, and the weird thing about it, though, um, no one knew this, I think, at the time, but when Eastwood bought the rights to the book, um, the book's author, uh, nobody knew it was a pen name for a guy that had actually been in the Clan. Really? I didn't know that. So this doesn't come come to light until like the 90s. Um, But of all the weird things for for somebody from the clan to write this book that ends up being this film about, hey, you know, how about if we just live together for a change? Yeah. How about if we just get along? Yeah, and And the war is over. I mean, that's kind of the way the the movie ends is – uh, Josie, he's wounded, he rides off to an uncertain fate, but the guy who's been chasing him, his old friend who turned against him, says, you know, why don't you tell Mr. Wales that the war is over? And that's kind of what the whole point is about, is trying to yeah. find a way to live with something. Yeah. When change has come along and it's left you behind, you can either yeah. learn to adapt, yeah. and live again, together, or die together. Yeah, and another film with great performances, uh, that's uh, John Vernon from Animal House, Plays Fletcher. Yes, uh, a fantastic actor. He didn't do near as much as I wished he had of. He's got a great voice. Oh, the voice is amazing, yeah. But he was yeah. the, the mayor in Dirty Harry, uh, the first Dirty Harry film. Oh, that's right. So Clint right. would love, he'd love using him. A, uh, a, lot of, and, a lot of Eastwood actors. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah Clint tends to use the same folks over and over again. Um, Sam Bottoms that would go on to be in uh, Apocalypse Now as Lance. Lance. Uh, Chief Dan George uh, plays Lone Waddy. You know the the, the Cherokee uh, that goes with him uh, as they head to Mexico. So that's one. That's my pretty much my number one. Always stop and watch is Josie Wales. It's a great. It is a great film. You know, it's. You know, one of the things I think is great about all the movies we choose is that it seems like we do a really good job of not just picking ones that are, you know, either titillating or mindless escapism, but they're well made yeah. as well as ha- having something to say. Uh, not not always. You know, when we did last time, we did uh, uh, several Cary Grant films. Uh, you know, the the comedies he did were not didn't necessarily have anything to say but they're just so well-crafted. And, you know, we talk about this all the time, about how the craft is so important Absolutely. in pop culture and just about anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially Clint and his movies, the movies like Outlaw Josie Wales and so much of the stuff he does, it's just well-crafted. Yeah. And Excalibur was the same way. It was well-crafted and a great story. Yeah, yeah that great story piece, that's kind of where we tend to, to work with that because... Uh, if you if you tell a story and tell it well, you know it gets people's attention. It doesn't have to be deep. It's usually better if it is. And both of these definitely had some meta things in them that were pretty important. Um, but you know, hey, 
they don't have to be. I mean, uh, Robert's got some comedies coming up. They're not exceptionally deep, although they are pretty profound at times. Well, uh, and in and in context of today's world, the, the depth and profundity of them uh, are uh, are interesting points that we could certainly argue. Well, I guarantee it. So, uh, before I get on to mine, uh, unless Martin, you have anything else? It sounded like you were kind of done with your Josie Wales. It's hard to spend as much time on our movies as, as Francis has spent on on uh, Excalibur. We'd make a three hour episode. Ha 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 ha. Anyway, you guys can interrupt me at any time. You know, yeah, well, we, we try. Did. You do. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, uh, before we get to my movie, uh, I am drinking uh, the Woodford Double Oaked tonight. Uh, I thought I'd go back to my uh, my uh, all-time uh, standby favorite there. And it's my go-to bourbon when, um, when I want something good and smooth. It's, it's quality bourbon. You're just a show-off because I've got a non-double oaked Woodford. Ah, but you know what? That's still a great bourbon. Well, absolutely, it is. It's, 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 it's well worth. It's smooth. It's just not as robust, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I've, yeah, I've got that one in my sights to get some more of that. Um, I'm on a budget tonight. I'm doing <laughs> Old Tub on the budget. This is really, really nice stuff for twenty, twenty-two dollars a bottle. So I pop me a couple of flamingo-shaped ice cubes uh, in oh, the no. bottom here, and uh, having some Old Tub. So. Yeah, I, I think we'll draw draw close on uh, Josie Wales because uh, I'm like Francis. I could go on forever if I if I get started talking about the scenes and the lines and the uh, you know Donnie, much of a living boy and stuff like that. Hell's coming to breakfast. I mean, we can keep going. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, go for it, Robert. So uh, my two movies are made by the the same guy, Mel Brooks. Chose a couple of Mel Brooks movies. And the first one I want to talk about, uh, and we may, you know, as long as we're going, we may only do one movie apiece tonight. Uh, so, but I want to talk about uh, Blazing Saddles, uh, <laughs> primarily because this was just on television, one of the cable channels recently. I forget which one, but it was still edited all to hell. Because oh, really? when you think about the language in that movie, you can't say that. It's just not going to happen. And you know, a lot of the, the humor, by today's standards, you know, you look at it, it's it's very childish and sophomoric. It's, you know, there's fart jokes and all kinds of stuff that is not sophisticated. It's kind of, it's almost slapstick in a way. Yeah. But it's, to me, you know, Mel Brooks with his, his comedies, and this is probably the most slapstick uh, of all of them, he does such a good job, though, still with the characters. You know, they're all memorable. It's not just about uh, the characters. But, I mean, you've got um, uh, Madeline Kahn, who, you know, is in almost every one of his movies. And she's playing that, that knockoff Marlena Dietrich character. Lily von Stuckt. Yeah, Lily von Stuckt. I believe she is called. And, you know, she does a great Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich, Dietrich. And uh, she, she gets the accent down just right. And, you know, she's memorable not just because of the, the goofy jokes. And, you know, Harvey Corman is in this. And he, he does a great villain, uh, which is just, just phenomenal. And he and Mel Brooks, uh, who, Mel Brooks plays the uh, idiot governor. And, you know, he, he basically doesn't know what he's doing. And he, he's basically all his goal, his only goal is to chase tail, basically. 
Behind the curtains with his secretary, yes. Yes. I didn't get a harumph out of either one of you guys. Harumph, harumph, harumph. (laughs) (laughs) And the scenes with the two of those guys together are just fantastic. Uh, The the comedic skill of all these these different actors is phenomenal. And Cleveland Little is the the sheriff, is just, he's great. He's fantastic. He, He pulls it off. The reason that movie is not offensive, like it could be offensive, is because he's the only guy, with the exception of Gene Wilder's character, that is kind of in on the joke. He's saying, you know, I'm kind of making this up, gentlemen. I'm just showing you how evil racism really is and how stupid it is. Yeah, that's one of the reasons yeah, this movie is so great, because yeah. that's, the, that's, that's the whole meta-narrative, is saying, you know, if you're a racist, you're the stupid one. The joke's on you. Exactly. Uh, and that's, that's why this movie, I love watching it so much, even though... I mean, it drops the N-word a million times. Oh, That's yeah. Why it's, it's, uh, but, again, when the, the hero is a black man, I mean, it, it kind of gets, it's funny when Gene Wilder wakes up in the, in the jail and he looks upwards because he's hanging upside down and sees Cleavon Little. He goes, and Cleavon says, are you awake? He goes, yes. Are we black? He goes, yes, we are. Then we're awake. We're awake. They're very confused. <laughs> That's right. And, but you see, that, that racial harmony, because those two are the best of friends. They become the best of yes. friends here. And those are, those are the only ones that get it. Uh, and, of course, they're the ones who succeed in the end. Yeah, you know, it's got its message, but, you know, unless you're... When you're you don't get the message until, you know, you're into it more. You're, you're drawn in by the comedy and what have you. And You've so, got to stay... If you're easily offended, you'll never make it through. That's really. true. That's yeah. true. You know, snowflakes today could never right. watch this movie. Your they they need to not stop apply. watching five minutes into it and go to their safe space. Uh, yeah. it's, but that's kind of the point. Yeah. Like you that's said, right. you know, to, to show yeah. how stupid it is. Yeah. Because it's, it's the same way of telling the same point as Josie Wales, or different way of telling the same point as Josie Wales. Yeah. Hey, guess what? Let's live together. Yep. And stop That's being right. dumbasses. And uh, but it's done in such a hysterical way. And was it uh, was it Richard Pryor originally going to play? He was. Uh, it was talked there? about, and they ended up. And I don't remember what the reason was that he didn't make that. Wanted uh, too much money, or no? The producers were afraid because he was always whacked out on coke or something. Exactly. It. That's right. I think the producers didn't <laughs> want him. Uh, uh, that's but I, Cleveland I think Cleveland Little did it better anyway. Than oh, I do too. Richard Pryor could have. And, and Richard Pryor can be great, but uh, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder did several movies together. Actually, you know, Silver Streak and uh, mm-hmm. Evil, and they did fine. They actually had some good chemistry. But you can't beat Cleveland Little and, and Gene Wilder. They just it, amazed they great. were phenomenal together. Yeah, yeah Cleveland Little's style was perfect. That's right. May they both yeah. rest in peace, by the way, gentlemen. Yeah, they yes. both passed away. Yes. They'll so, yeah, still around though. You know, the, Mel Brooks, the man really is a genius. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, he he was able to push the boundaries. Because really, even when that movie came out, as much as the N-word is used, that, that, I'm sure that gave some of the, 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 the studio execs the heebie-jeebies. Uh, you know, because you're talking the early 70s. You know, there have been race riots in several cities. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, this was not a, you know something that uh, you could just say whatever you wanted. So doing it probably was the right movie at the the right move at the right time. 
in many ways. Uh, and you know, kind of like I said, it kind of suckered you in, and you know, by the time you're enjoying all the comedy, you realize, man, maybe that I is kind they, of stupid. Yeah, they didn't know what they had on their hands, and it, it was like, well, it's kind of cheap. We're not out a whole lot. Yeah, let let Brooks make whatever he wants. Yeah, well, yeah, he okay. he had a history at this point of making some good movies, so he was kind of like because he's his name it is Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Yeah, uh, so he was able to command enough of a presence in Hollywood that that they'll say because you're right, it didn't cost much. I mean, there's westerns everywhere uh, at this point, you know, and it's all done on the set, and they even incorporate some modern sets into it uh, as the movie moves on, and you have yeah. to. Suspend disbelief when they break through the wall into uh, Dom DeLuise in there with his uh, champagne uh, floats and uh, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, running when, in there. yeah. When there's a big fight scene and it breaks out into all the other movies being made. That's right. Oh yeah, I work for Mel Brooks. Boom, there you go. Yeah, I'm working for Mel Brooks. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and just the number of famous people, famous actors that were in that, uh, you know, and they were famous for the time too. Yeah. Uh, not just uh, famous later. Uh, it's just, you know, it's an all-star cast, and just about everybody does a phenomenal job in that. But he, that's true of Mel Brooks. Again, he's a great craftsman. He really is. I so, it. I mean, I go on and on about that yeah. Mel Brooks. What's your time, gentlemen? Well, um, oh, just go ahead, oh. Francis. Go on to your next one. Yeah, we we can make this roll. We can make right. this roll here. Robert, do you want to slide into your next one because we're well, I was going to say that might be a good thing to do Let's while we're on Mel Brooks because you're going to do another Mel Brooks. Yeah, yeah. So the other Mel Brooks uh, is uh, probably one he's uh, almost as well known for uh, from the '70s, and that's Young Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. <laughs> yes, but in the end, it's Frankenstein. That's uh, right. The name is Frankenstein. Yeah, right. it, Gene Wilder is in it. Madeline Kahn is in it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Marty Feldman does a great job as Igor. Uh, that that guy was born to play that part. That's Igor. Yes, Igor. Yes. Just, Igor. Right, right. Um, Terry Gar. Let's not forget Terry Gar. Oh yes, the wonderful so, Terry Gar. Rolling in the hay. Oh yes. Boyle. She says even today she still gets asked when she's seen if they want to roll in the hay with her. I believe it. I can believe it too. Yes. 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 What knockers? Oh, well, thank you, you doctor. Oh. Yeah. And uh, let's not forget Frau Blucher. Yeah. yeah. Have to have the the horse. The uh, yeah, all the the sight gags and the the double entendres. This is probably the greatest movie for double entendres uh, that I have ever oh. seen. But it's shot in black and white because it's meant to be a throwback to the horror films, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing a send up of those, and it's just. To me, it's just one of those things that is so enjoyable for not just the comedy, but it's just, I don't know, to me, there's just something about black and white films to begin with that I just absolutely love. Yeah. And, you know, you throw some of my favorite comedic actors in this, and it's just, to me, it's just one of those things that's a great hour and a half to, to spend whiling away your time, just relaxing, because, you know, there's not necessarily any you know, deep message to this one. It's just plain fun entertainment. And it's great when you can pick up on all the little send-ups, you know, if you're uh, well-read enough to catch up on all, uh, catch all those, uh, in addition to, you know, all the double entendres. Because, uh, again, he, Mel Brooks is such a great master at saying two things at once. <laughs> That's very well put, sir. Yeah. yeah. 
That's yeah. very good. Yeah. It yeah. helps if you've seen the original James Whale uh, movies that these are based off of, because you pick up a lot of the uh, the little uh, sight wink wink shake shakes that Brooks puts in here. Because as a cinematographer, he's going to it's it's going to be playing off those images that are very much part of our yeah. understanding. Oh, and what's the guy who played the monster in this? Peter um, Boyle. Peter Boyle. Yes, I could not think of his name. He's great. Yeah, great character actor to begin with. For children yeah. of the '90s, Ray Romano's dad. Yes, that's right. Ray Romano's dad. That's right. Yeah, and he he doesn't have that many lines. No, uh, most of I mean, he says very little until the very end, uh, and he, and even that's not very long, that not that very much. Uh, it's just uh, it, it's it's fun. My God, it's just fun. Uh, yeah. He, um, uh, and he ends it up, and uh, I mean, just the, the Marty Feldman alone, in many respects, makes that movie. You know, they're digging the grave at one point, and he says, and they come out, and uh, he's saying, "God," he says, "That oh, could be worse. Could be raining." And of course, the lightning strikes and starts raining, and he looks over at him and talks about wanting to give him a. They're doing charades about giving him a set of gift stuff. I mean, <laughs> we could, we could go on. Yeah, got it. So. Yeah, but I, I think those are two masterpieces. Uh, not necessarily the highlight of his career, but man, they are at the top. You know, oh yeah, I, I, again, we always watch them every yep. single time. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, they don't get on, get around that often anymore. That's why I was supposed to Blazing Saddles the other day. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, in, in, around October, you know, whenever the monster movies gets shown, Young Frankenstein kind of makes its way out uh, sometimes. Uh, along with the other those other horror movies and stuff like that, it's just kind of tis the season. Yeah, yeah. So going in reverse order, Martin, what was your uh, yes. second movie? Yes. So my second one again is one of those landmark films. Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. Oh um, yes, love it. Don and it, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm. I'm a little bit uh, of a kind of a mob book guy anyway. Uh, read the mob books, do the mob movies. Um, Goodfellas, Casino, those are a couple of my other favorites. Uh, but for some reason, even though The Godfather is kind of a more romanticized version of these, these tales, uh, I do stop and watch. Mm -hmm. um, You're talking you know, specifically the first one. Yeah, not necessarily the trilogy. I mean, that yeah. would kind of that's kind of wider than we really wanted to go here. Uh, the third one, I I don't think I've ever watched the third one all the way through. I watched the second one, I believe. To me, it's a little plotting, a little slow. A lot of really? people claim the second one is the better of all of them. I right. Can't, I can't agree with that only because I'm a Brando guy. I love Brando. Yeah. He he, the, uh, he walks so large through the first movie. Just the yeah. first that those first fifteen minutes where they're at his daughter's wedding and just the opening scenes. Uh, I'm sorry. He, he his presence, his absence would yeah. be felt without yeah. that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I, I the movie just tears at me every time because he doesn't survive. I mean that's kind of a story, of course. Yeah. Right. I'm thinking, you know, wow. That's yeah, and that, that's that's kind of my thing with it too. Is it's kind of this push pull with me for The Godfather, and that kind of this romanticized Don Corleone granting all these benefices to all these. You know, I was like, no. In reality, most of these guys really were killers. Just yeah, moral like Corleone ends up being. Yeah, none. You know, uh, this kind of. I mean, most of these guys were these street-level Luca Brasi 
and would do anything for a buck, including strangle you. Um, you know, Goodfellas is, you know, much closer to it. Um, so, know, in The Godfather, the scene where uh, Sonny goes out after Connie's husband right. and beats him up in the street, right, wouldn't happen. They'd have just picked him up one night and you'd never have seen him again. Which, right. of course, is essentially what happens at the end of the movie. Which kind of <laughs> shows why Sonny was a bit of a putz and Michael yeah. is the one who really is yeah. the power. They, and that's the point of the film, too, is that transformation of Michael from the war hero to the Don. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, me about my business, Kay. That's right. And efficient, too. He is, he is, he is brutally good at what he does, yeah. which his father was good at what he did, but was less brutal. His brother, Sonny, was brutal, but not good at what he did. Michael is kind of the preeminence of all of it. He's yeah. the way it's, you know, that's why he, he succeeds. Oh. The movie, yeah. you know, it, it's not about uh, Brando's Vito Corleone. It's about Michael. It's about Michael, yeah. Michael is the godfather uh, of the title. Um, but yeah, for some reason it does. It just it always drags me in. Of course, you know the great scene of uh, even when you try and get out, it just drags you back yeah, in. Yeah, oh yes. Um, you know the great scene of, with the horse in the head in the bed and and all that good stuff. And you know the Don always gets his way. And uh, we didn't even mention one of my favorite actors, Robert Duvall, uh, who plays such a major role with Tom Hagen in this movie. Uh, he's kind of the outsider looking in. I was reading something about this movie lately. He's meant to be the surrogate for the audience yeah. uh, that doesn't understand the Italian culture, and they have him to kind of show what those differences are. And he is so amazing. I mean, I mean, you think about it. He's one of the most sympathetic characters in there. He's adopted into this family, uh, and he gives his all to it, and he's accepted completely. Uh, he's just like another son, which that's kind of a commentary on this is not just a group of thugs out there. There's a sophistication yeah. here that I don't want to necessarily say it's worthy of imitation, but it's certainly worthy of taking notice. Yeah. And that's Coppola. I mean, that's, that's, well, his, that, that's his delivery. You know, and that's another thing. Uh, one of my problems with, again, being a little bit red on the real thing, uh, Concietti isn't the Don's attorney, you know, the concierge is never going to be an Irish lawyer. In well, the yeah. family, the concierge is the guy that's usually the go-between between the street crews and the boss. Right. Well, supposed in the, in the to know everything. Movie, that gets explained more uh, yeah. because uh, Tom Hagen is really not the concierge. He's a temporary guy. He's yeah. the, he, uh, because the real one has died, and he fills the role because he's got the trust. But it's meant to only be for now. It's not really meant. Yeah. It, but if you see the first movie by itself, you don't get that. You're yeah. right. And it, it, so, no one of the things that um, I'm not, I have not nearly uh, the experience with the Godfather movies to, to weigh in on this, but I do want to bring up one thing. So, do you guys remember Matthew Broderick movie from the 80s called The Freshman? The Freshman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Loved Brando in that movie because he was playing Don Corleone. In disguise, basically. Yeah. And it was just phenomenal because it was about, you know, Matthew Broderick getting pulled into what he thinks is the mob life accidentally. And it's just a fantastic movie. It's a little bit of another one of those, it's a little bit of a send-up of the, uh, the, the genre. Uh, but, yeah, just Brando in that was just phenomenal. Brando Every time I think of Godfather, I think of that movie next. Yeah. 
Uh, Brando did some really great movies late in his career. He did that one and Don Juan DeMarco with Johnny Depp, believe it or not. And they're excellent. They're, I mean, uh, this is even the fat Brando by this point. Yeah. The man could still act. He's, he, he's oh, I mean, yeah. that great. And don't forget, he's Superman's dad. Oh, there you go. That's exactly right. Uh, and if you get a chance to see the Donner cut of Superman 2, he's in it. Because uh, they, 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 they filmed all that stuff. They just never released it until they rearranged re things. And they kind of did away with the whole Superman 2 that was released, uh, the Lester cut, and uh, brought him all back. It was, it was great to hear his voice. Uh, Kurt. Voices that's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal with Kurt. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, exactly. Of course, that's the reason he was in Apocalypse Now is because he'd done The Godfather before, and he knew Coppola, and Coppola was able to talk him into it because that, you know, from what we read, that wasn't easy because yeah. he didn't. He wanted to do it his way. He didn't really want to do it, and he only shows up for a little while, and he has to be photographed a certain way, you know, blah, blah, because he's Brando. And he's one of those guys the studios didn't trust. Yeah. Didn't want him around. Yeah, because he so, makes outrageous demands. Yeah. Well, he made, what was it, something like $10 million for 15 minutes in Superman 1? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember the but it was a ludicrous amount for 15 minutes of screen time, you know. And probably not even a full 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he, he got top billing, too. I mean, yeah, he, and he got he, top billing. He, you know, Christopher Reed was a nobody yeah. at the time. So, so, so Francis, we'll back out. around. Yep. Back around. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave us. I'm gonna end us with uh, one of the greatest movies of all time. As you all know, this Steven Spielberg's first real big movie. It's not his first, but it's the one that made him a, uh, a household name, and it almost destroyed his career. To tell you this, that 1975 great movie, Jaws. The first one. The movie that made an entire nation afraid to go into the water that summer and for the next three or four summers after that. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it has a, it, the story is well documented. The mechanical shark didn't work worth a damn that they had in here because there's no such thing as CGI in these days. So Spielberg takes a chance, and bearing in mind the studio is on his back, you know, constantly. You're over budget, you're over time, what the hell are you doing here? This is for, a, a, in many respects, a junior filmmaker. So he films it from the shark's perspective in many places and scares the absolute dog crap out of the audience as a result from the way he does it. The shark itself is actually minimally in the movie, and that's what makes it so good. That and the three, the three leads uh, who are phenomenal uh, in it, uh, Roy Scheider, uh, Richard Dreyfuss, and my personal favorite, Robert Shaw. The man, Robert Shaw. Yeah, yeah, and filming on location too. I mean, Absolutely. on the freaking water, which you yeah. know the studio didn't want them to do Super that. Expensive. Super expensive. Super expensive. Yeah, yeah. Subject to the weather. Yeah, it, it was a fantastic film. It really was. Yeah, you know, the first summer blockbuster that really started yeah. the idea, the notion yeah. of release your big movies in the summer, and and we'll have the, this great summer season. It's Jaws that starts that. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it, it spawned. You know, the whole Jaws thing spawned is fodder for one of the greatest meme uh, that you'll ever see is, you know, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. You know, That's you right. see that all over the place. Exactly <laughs> variations yeah, on so it. many famous lines in it and things like yeah. that. That's, that's probably the most famous of it, you know. Yeah, but, you uh, know, that opening scene, though, where, where the shark gets the girl who's swimming and, you know, you see the, 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 
the you don't again you don't see the shark you just see what the shark does right. and you see the the hit on her leg you know she gets jumped you know where she's basically jerked in the water and pulled down a little bit and then finally you know under and all that that was phenomenal filmmaking absolutely Susan Backlinney was the actress that did it uh, and uh, she was I mean she'll talk about it now you know because really kind of her only real role uh, and it was they did it you know she here there she is out there buck naked uh, and they film it out there for like days with these weird filters. I mean, it's filmed during the day, but you can't tell because of the way the filters they're using on that. And she sells it. Man, she sells it so well because you just see her head above the water most of the time. Right. And it, it scares the hell out of people because you, you know what's happening, but you really don't. And all of a sudden, I mean, you know, you, can't, you, never, you never lose the fear that, you're, that you get when she's pulled under. And doesn't come back, and you just hear the dinging yeah. of the buoy, and that's you know her talk, about, talk yeah. about an opening scene that yeah. sets the yeah. tone for the whole movie. That's that, that. Peter eventually wrote that scene in the book because I read that book. I was ten when the movie came out. I didn't see it till we were in college. It still scared the shit out of me. But I read the book. Talk about a glutton for punishment. I read the book because everybody was reading the book in those summers, yeah. uh, and that whole scene is pretty much filmed as Benchley wrote it. And I'll give him credit as an author, even though he's kind of repudiated the book because he didn't. He kind of took on a life of its own. Sharks being killed even today in great big Yeah, he didn't like that, and he rightfully so because they are an endangered species. They're very necessary to the ecosystem. But, but just think, without yeah. Jaws, we probably wouldn't have had five Sharknado movies. That's true. Absolutely, no, we wouldn't have any shark movies. There wouldn't be such a thing as a shark movie. Yeah, it wouldn't we be Shark Week, you know. Shark Week. That's right, because it all it all kind of re, trying to recapture what that magic that Spielberg caught in the bottle that yeah. that great summer of 1975. Yeah. I mean, Jaws two was meh. Uh, it was not real. Roy Scheider was in it, and they gave him actually a little bit of dramatic work to do. And he was better. He was pretty good with that. But I'm sorry, Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw's absence. You just you just couldn't do it. They, they couldn't yeah. redo it again. I love Robert Shaw in that movie. Of course, I watched most of anything that he did. Of course, he was drunk a whole lot of the time, actually. And uh, and you guys know the famous scene, where it, which is the scariest moment in the whole movie, is when they're on the boat talking, and he tells the story of the USS Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it's yeah. written by our, our great hero, yeah. John Melius. Yeah, which we talked about before with Melius. You know, it's interesting you brought up the novel because, yeah, uh, Benchley's novel is awesome. It's it, it is. is very well done. It's much more layered uh, and complex than the film. Uh, you know, you can't obviously catch all of that. And and um, Spielberg makes a deliberate decision to make the uh, the Hooper character much more noble and heroic and survive. Oh yeah, novel, well, he's a scumbag. Yeah, well, and because in the novel he's this beach bum. That seduces Brody's wife. I mean, it's this, this great big tall, tan well, it, guy. It's and a class thing that. too, yeah. because yeah. his older brother dated Brody's wife originally. There's right. in the novel. There's a whole lot of class division stuff in it. Right. Uh, Brody's wife Ellen is actually for money. Brody's a local. Right. Uh, you know, and there's this whole thing of you know Hooper's from her world. And, and Spielberg cut all of that out in the film. It's way too complex. Yeah, there's no real room for that. Well, the ending yeah. itself is completely different. And yeah. people, I mean, you read, watch the movie at the end. Of course, you know, the shark has to bite it. No right. 
Yeah. Actually, pun very much intended. Dramatically, too. In the novel, yeah, the it has is, to happen because the novel, uh, basically, the shark comes up to Brody, stops swimming, and drowns, and, and goes to the bottom, and Brody watches it descend with Quint still attached to it because Quint isn't eaten. He's, he gets caught, his leg gets caught in uh, one of the uh, ropes that are attached to the barrels that are in the shark. And he gets drowned that way. Well, I'm sorry, Quint gets a much better, you know, Quint has to die the way he dies in the movie because yeah. it's set up brilliantly. He escaped the sharks once. The sharks come back to extract its revenge. Oh, I mean, there's a tragedy around that. It's just, you know, you had to blow up the shark even though there's no way that freaking tank would have stayed in the damn shark's yeah. mouth. But to, yeah, the, the, yeah. To me, the the big interesting part and in what made the film work, and Spielberg made these decisions, is cutting all of that stuff out and focusing it on the fear aspects, and the, that's, right. that's what made it a great summer blockbuster. But the novel is great too, in a different way. And it, yeah, because everybody read it. I mean, once the movie came out, everybody wanted to read the book, and it is yeah. a long book. You know, it's like four hundred pages. Uh, it, it's very different. Yeah, but it's it's very much a you know a, a statement about class divisions and, and the, the nature of these little small tourist towns in New England and you know. yeah, and actually, if I remember correctly, it's Amityville. It's the same setting as the Am Amityville horror uh, movies, isn't it? Isn't the town Amityville or Amity? The town is Amity, Amity Island. Yeah, Amity Island. No, yeah, it's got the same title in it. It's it's still yeah. kind of a play on words because it means friendship. They even say that in the movie. Yeah. Which is kind of the point because it ain't very friendly when there's a shark out there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been, it's meant to be Cape Cod. It's it's meant yeah, to be right. Martha's Vineyard, uh, Kennedy's, all that business. Uh, whereas like Amityville Horror is Long Island, New no. York, New York is stuff. Okay, never uh, mind. Cut that from the from the tape. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, that's that's my other movie. I, I have to watch it every single time. Uh, we, we can all probably quote it uh, if we thought very long and hard about it. Uh, uh, but you're right. The, the number one quote that comes out is you're going to need a bigger boat. Because this is the first time you ever see Shark. Really. You see glimpses before, but you really see him there. Uh, yep. and, that's a, and it's a fishing story. The last third of the movie, which is the best part of the movie, it's just three guys in a boat versus the shark. And the shark almost wins. Two thirds. Yeah. I mean, the shark wins two out of three falls. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the final fall is the most important one. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. It's definitely in that same New England uh, literary tradition, you know, straight from Melville to Van Gogh. Yeah. You're right, there's a lot of novels overtones in this. Uh, it's because Quint is still kind of an Ahab figure. He is. He's still, he's still going back yeah. after the one that got away, and of course it gets him in the end. Uh, and But it works. It still works. Uh, Quint is, you know, they call him a colorful character in the movie. And I'll give Robert Shaw credit because in the book he's not that interesting. He's kind of dour. But in but. You bring Robert Shaw drunk as he was on that screen, and he just he, he sells it every single time. Well, that's outstanding. Awesome. Outstanding. So that's six 70s films yep. that listeners, I'm sure you know, but if you don't, if you happen to be a little, you know, one of these uh, kind of maybe a, a Gen Z or a millennial that uh, hasn't happened to come across these yet, they are outstanding filmmaking. 
Don't be intimidated by Blazing Saddles. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's you right. don't have to grab your blankie and run to the corner. It's okay. Because the point is, all the people who are saying those words, they're the dumbasses. That's so, right. So it all comes out cool in the end. And it's all about learning how to live together. Francis, buddy, what are we doing next time? Uh, we're going back to history next time. Uh, a little palate cleanse, you know. Um, We've we done a couple of... Uh, uh, we did Civil War earlier this year, and we did Nietzsche last time. We're going to go back to uh, American history. Uh, Martin, you're the one that wanted to do this. Uh, we want to talk about the turn of the century, not the one that just most recently happened, but the one before that, the one that coined right. the term. The one that people our age think of when you say yeah. turn of the century. The one that coined the term turn of the century, meaning yeah. uh, the new American century, 1899 to 1991, 1901. This is the time of William McKinley the time of the Spanish-American War. This is just prior to Theodore Roosevelt's arrival on the world stage. And in many respects, it's America's ascendancy onto the world stage. Yep. Uh, world War I was not, would not have been really possible or even considered the way it came out with the Americans if it weren't for what happens in this time. And Martin really, really, really is jonesing to talk about this. He's most well-read on that era. Uh, so we're going to have a great time. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.